In the name of the God who shows mercy. Amen. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This familiar story, the story of the Good Samaritan, is all about questions. Big questions answered with other questions. Questions that take you deeper and then get turned on their heads. We are left to live the questions as the story challenges us with answers that are simple, but not at all easy. What must I do? to inherit eternal life. The story begins with this question that a lawyer asks to test Jesus. That phrase may mean that the lawyer wants to entrap him or that he's just using a familiar rhetorical style of the day. Either way, I take the question seriously. Not so much about life after death somewhere else later on, but now, how do we live fully and abundantly? How do we know the presence of the kingdom and our identity as God's beloved? How do we find the holiness and wholeness of walking in God's way? Jesus honors the lawyer's expertise how do you interpret what's written in the Torah about this, he asks. The lawyer responds with quotes from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, your whole being and your neighbor as yourself. Yes, says Jesus, do this and you will live. But the lawyer, has another question, seeking to justify himself, according to Luke. Does this mean he needs clarification? That he wants to make sure he's checking all the boxes? That he wants to identify the limits of his responsibility? Who is my neighbor, he asks. By implication, who isn't my neighbor? Jesus replies with this famous parable, the kind of deceptively straightforward story that reveals more meanings the more you look at it from different angles. And for me, it raises more questions, including where are we in the story and where is God in the story? Jesus tells of a man traveling on the notoriously dangerous road that descends steeply from Jerusalem to Jericho. On the way, he's ambushed and falls among robbers. They steal from him, beat him, brutalize him, and leave him half dead, wounded, and bleeding by the side of the road. We don't have any backstory about the victimized man, nothing about why he's on this journey or what he's carrying or who he is. And as a result, our minds can wander to all the wounded people we encounter personally and through the news, all the victims of violence, of guns, of hate crimes, of the systemic violence of poverty or addiction. Migrants dying from heat stroke in a truck in San Antonio. People denied their bodily autonomy 
the wounded places in the natural world, the very young and our elders who are frail and at risk, those targeted for the color of their skin, for who they are or who they love, and those who just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. There are so many wounds of violence and powerlessness. Some of them are visible, and some of them are far less obvious. The scripture tells us that this is how God comes to us, in our siblings, in their need. So God shows up in this story in part as the man lying naked in the ditch. Are we also among the wounded and ambushed ones? Do we identify with the brokenness of the man who fell among robbers? Is the brokenness personal or is it communal? Can we touch the wounded places in ourselves and our communities? The story opens up those possibilities, though they're not necessarily comfortable or familiar. Jesus says that others also travel on that road. First a priest and then a Levite entered the scene, hereditary religious leaders. Jesus sets up and then subverts his hearer's anticipation. These are the expected heroes of the story. They are respected religious and community leaders. They are well-educated in how to love God and neighbor. And yet, when they see the desperate man, each one of them passes by on the other side of the road. Taking on some common misinterpretations, scholar Amy Jill Levine emphasizes that the point here is not avoiding possible religious defilement. It's not scruples about purity codes. The story is not a judgment of supposed Jewish legalism in favor of Christian openness. That's not what this story is about at all. It's about the human failure of people we think are good, and frankly, the ones with whom we find ourselves in church on Sunday may most readily identify with the priest and the Levite, whether they are religious leaders or not. So why don't these men stop? Levine reminds us of a sermon that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. preached on this text, in which he too asked this question, why don't they stop? And his answer made a lot of sense to Levine and it does to me too. King posits that they were afraid. For sure, they might have been afraid that the robbers were still hanging around. Maybe they'd get robbed and beaten and left for dead as well. But maybe they were also just afraid of what would happen if they got involved with the wounded man's needs. How would one thing lead to the next? Would they be overwhelmed? Would they find they couldn't help? In the face, my friends, of the massive violence and suffering in our world, we may well identify with these characters. They compartmentalize. 
They decide this man's crisis is not their problem. They can't or won't let themselves experience the horror of what has happened to him, what is still happening just on the other side of the road, right in front of their eyes. It seems unbearable. I can understand it. And the truth is, not all suffering is equally ours to respond to. But an emergency right in front of us cries out for our attention. It cries out for our humanity. When we refuse to see, when we refuse to feel, when we close our hearts in the face of injustice and suffering and dam up the flow of compassion, which literally means feeling with, the deep kinship that binds us in the web of life. We are refusing the flow of God's presence, which is life in its fullness. King preached that these two upstanding pious men ask, what will happen to me if I try to help this man in the ditch? He proposes that a better question is, what will happen to the man if I don't? The third traveler, a Samaritan, asks this second question. We call him the Good Samaritan. The inclusion of the adjective suggests that his goodness is unusual. Amy Jill Levine proposes that this in itself is a kind of slur against Samaritans, as if to imply that all the others are not so good. It's the sort of condescending, exceptionalist phrase we might hear in words like, he's a trustworthy Muslim, she's a good cop, he's such an articulate black candidate, she is as capable as a man. Jesus' Jewish hearers expect nothing good from a Samaritan. With the kind of bitterness found in extended families with centuries of history, Samaritans were regarded as the enemies of Jews, based in part on ancient theological difference and judgment. You may remember that in the chapter before this one, Jesus is rejected by a Samaritan village where he wants to preach because his face is set toward Jerusalem. He has to rebuke James and John, who are ready to call down fire from heaven upon the resistant Samaritan villagers. How intense the dislike, mistrust, and stereotyping is. And so how shocking that Jesus offers a Samaritan as the example of mercy and compassion to emulate. For as the Samaritan traveled by, he came near the wounded man. Literally, a neighbor is one defined by nearness. The word means one who comes alongside. He gets proximate, as Brian Stevenson would say. Coming near, seeing the man's wounds, perhaps hearing his groans, smelling blood and dirt. The Samaritan is moved with pity. He responds to the man's suffering in his own body, heart, and imagination. He's stirred to touch, to enter into the mess of the crisis before him. 
So as he could, he bandaged the man's injuries and provided what healing solace and salve he had. He put him on his own donkey and got him to a safe and hospitable place, tended to him, settled him, and paid the innkeeper fairly for his care. He promised to return to check on him. I wonder what it was like for the wounded man to see the face of his enemy, someone he had learned to fear and judge tending to his weakness. How did he work with that cognitive dissonance? Or was it simply the case that since this person had come to help him in his hour of greatest need, he just accepted the rescue gratefully? Jesus turns the question, who is my neighbor, on its head. He asks the lawyer, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Replies the lawyer, the one who showed him mercy. Wonder if he finds it hard to even say the word Samaritan. Part of the genius of the parable is that the enemy is shown to be a true neighbor by his actions, by showing mercy. And what's more, in doing so, he bears the image and does the work of God. This is another place that God shows up in the story, in the Samaritan's acts of compassion. This is the plumb line that the prophet Amos speaks of in our first lesson. It is God's most important commandment, and it expresses God's own being. Be merciful, even as God is merciful. In loving our neighbor as ourselves, we also honor the divine in the other, and find the divine even in the enemy. Just a few more questions, and I will be done. I wondered a few minutes ago, what it might have been like for the wounded man to realize that this enemy was his savior. Who do we think is not our neighbor? Who do we exclude from the circle of our compassion and care? And from whom would we find it hard to receive help, even if it were life-saving? I read an article this past week about a woman who was unable to get an abortion last fall when the Texas law prohibiting the procedure after six weeks went into effect. She was leaving an abusive partner. She already had three kids, and she was completely clear about what she needed to do for herself, for herself and for them. But Texas, the state, wouldn't allow it, and she didn't have the means or the support to go anywhere else. So she found care in a home for women with unwanted pregnancies administered by deeply conservative anti-abortion Christians. And actually, they saved her life. They provided prenatal care, care for her kids, provisions for the baby that she was unwillingly forced to bear. And they supported her through labor and delivery, and they will give her a place to live for another year while she formulates a plan for her next steps. None of this mitigates against the lack of her own bodily autonomy, 
And it emerges from committed, thoughtful efforts to care holistically for women and children in a way that's not always present among folks who oppose abortion. But what interested me in the story was my resistance as I read the article. I didn't want to acknowledge that the help was sincere or meaningful, given as it was by people with whom I profoundly disagree about a fundamental human right. I didn't even want to honor the goodness and the kindness and the faith of those who had created this work. To be clear, I'm not saying that, it's most, that what's most important is for us to overcome our differences, especially when they are deep and substantial. We have to work at honoring one another, however. What's most important is to stop the bleeding and bind the wounds of those who are suffering and cast aside, to create space for safety and healing and to change the unjust policies that allow robbers to operate with impunity on the Jericho Road. But there's something about the willingness to get proximate to need and to dig in to make a difference. Something about the challenge of honoring the example of folks with whom I deeply disagree that resounds with Jesus, go and do likewise. It's hard but essential to recognize God's mercy in the gifts and ministries of our enemies. And it may help us show mercy ourselves in the contexts that call and challenge us. Mercy for others and also for ourselves. And how, even in times of deep division and struggle, do we grow the capacity for neighborliness? The story says we get nearer. We follow our curiosity and experience our vulnerability. We stay open to the pity that moves our hearts, our hands, and our imaginations. We develop our awareness of our own wounds, as well as the gifts and privileges we have to share. Showing mercy, being a neighbor, is like building a muscle. It's a practice an action that helps transform us. And one size does not fit all. We discern, we explore, we look and listen. Our neighborly acts of mercy may include prayer, simple daily kindness, direct service, protest, policy development and lobbying, phone calls and writing postcards, we may give money or other support. And even when we act individually, we are part of a many gifted body, the whole community of creation. And so, thank God, we do not have to do everything, but we can know that we strengthen and lean on each other. We must do something, the thing that is ours to do. I'd like to close by praying again the Collect for this Sunday, which serendipitously speaks of some of these questions. Let us pray. O oh Lord, mercifully receive the prayers of your people who call upon you, and grant that we may know and understand the things we ought to do, and also may have grace and power faithfully to accomplish them. 
Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.